coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 17th of September, 2023. He is not a tame lion. Our message uh, today sort of came by way of some of my devotions this week. I was reading some portions of God's Word and looking at their juxtaposition because I was reading from different sections of Scripture and noticing how they had sort of a theme to them. We'll touch on that as we go through our message this morning. And it brought to mind uh, some statements out of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you don't know now, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this series for children of all ages. <laughs> and uh, in the second book of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a girl that stumbles through into this land of Narnia and comes across a talking beaver. It's a story, right? And he's describing Aslan, which is a, a lion. And Lucy asks, is he safe? Safe, says the beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And a little bit later on, Tumnus, Fawn, says he's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. So I want to take off from that sort of theme of God not being a, a tame lion. God not being someone that we can readily cage up and separate and say, okay, now it's safe. So I want to take you to a few portions of God's Word and develop a few themes on that idea of being safe. Probably the, the reason this comes about is because we have a tendency to figure out a way that we can put God in a box. We like to sort of make, be comfortable with our understanding of who God is. And if we can pigeonhole him, if we can put him in a place where we can say, ah, okay, this is how he fits, this is where he goes, then we can sort of say, okay, we can move on with other aspects of our life. The problem with that is all of, all of life is involved with a living God. Have you ever supposed that you knew what God was about and what he wanted on a particular situation? Maybe you're faced with something and you say, I think I know what God wants for me only to find out later that isn't what he intended. Oftentimes, people will fill in the gaps of what they don't know about God 
by using their own imagination and ascribing to him their own values and tastes and say, well, he must be a lot like me. Must be a lot like how I think things about things. Must be a lot like I would do stuff. But most of the time, what they what they suppose about God is not exactly true. So I want to give you a few principles, and and then we'll sort of develop this idea of God not being a tame lion. Of course, the reference is to the lion of the tribe of Judah and the idea of him being Lord and master over all. Our first principle is this. God is not confined to the box to which we put him. He's not, he's not going to stay in some sort of box. He's always come, come busting out of the box. Whatever we figure, well, I've got the parameters now. God fits in this. He doesn't. He finds ways to bust right out. He's not going to be limited to our limitations. God doesn't work that way. Which brings us to the real first principle that follows that. It says God is holy and he does whatever he pleases. Now, when we think of the word holy, a lot of times we think of righteous, which certainly is okay to think about. But the word really means to be separate from. And that has all sorts of ramifications. First of all, God is not dependent on anybody. He's separate from the rest of his creation. We're dependent upon him, but he's not dependent upon us. Whatever we think is probably going to be inadequate about who God is. He is holy. And like I say, the word holiness has the idea of being separate. And we know that God is also righteous and good. So that figures into holiness too. Like in the book of Isaiah chapter 7, when the seraphim are surround the throne of God and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And there's certainly an exaltation in that declaration that you are great, you are above what we see and know and think. You're more than that. The psalmist says in two different places, Psalm 115 goes, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? It says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does what all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. No one's going to say no to God. He's going to do what he pleases. Psalmist in 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and sea and all the deeps. No one's going to say no to God and have any effect 
on God. God is going to do whatever he pleases. He often does things, and we don't understand them right away. We don't get them. Why did God do that? Why, why did that have to happen? We talked a little bit about the idea of pain in a previous message. Why do these things happen? Do we have the full understanding of God? No, we do not. Okay? So let's look at our next principle. He says, God takes notice of those that mock him. And what we sow, we reap. Now the word mock is interesting word. In fact, there's several Hebrew and Greek words they talk about what it means to mock God, to ridicule him, to, to defame him, to, and we see him, that word used to describe when Jesus uh, had the thorns planted on his head and the, and the soldiers mocked him. They also, that word is used to describe how the Pharisees described Jesus on the cross he says, if you are who you say you are, why don't you come down off the cross? But they didn't understand what Jesus was about. But God takes notice. God takes notice. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Can he be mocked? Yes. But will that have any bearing on what God is going to do? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. God says there is a divine equation that what you sow, you reap. Have you ever uh, planted anything in a garden? Anybody? Sure. A few of you planted? I've got a great crop of dandelions. <laughs> Came about when I blew on this nice, pretty buff ball and it went flying. Planted all those. Guess what came up? Dandelions. <laughs> what you plant, what you sow, you will reap. God takes notice of those who mock him. So those who make fun of God and think, oh, we're going to tell God something, and we don't think enough of him to be wary of him, he said, we're going to pay the price. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings for a good illustration of this. In the Old Testament, 2 Kings... Chapter 18. 
Second Kings 18. We have a longer section here. We're just going to dip down into it a little bit. But it involves some principal characters. One was King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a good king. A good king that was ruling the, the, the children of, of, uh, of Judah, God's people, and trying to do what was right in God's eyes. And then the second person is Sennacherib. He was a Syrian king, an enemy of Judah. In fact, an enemy of just about everybody. And he came to, to take care of Judah and include Judah into uh, his kingdom, basically, to conquer Judah. And then, then there's Rabshaketh. And he's a character because he's a spokesman for Sennacherib. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, Rabshakeh comes and he's making an appeal. And he's going to appeal to Hezekiah and to uh, those in Judah and saying, listen, time after time after time, we have come up against different nations They've relied on their gods, and their gods have let them down, and we conquered them, and we're here now, and your God is going to do the same. Well, those Judah knew that that was the case. That is exactly is what had happened. He had conquered kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And so, um, in verse 26, there's an interesting statement. Because it says that a couple men of Judah came to Rabshakeh and said, These things that you're saying about coming and destroying us, would, would you say them in, in the Aramaic language? So the people in the city wouldn't understand what you're saying. We know what you're saying. But the people, you know, you're frightening them by saying them in Hebrew. Rabshakeh goes, As my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine, Yuck. He says, no, I came to give warning to them all. And so he lays out this, what he's going to do. And in verse 31 and 32, here's what he says. I will come and take you, oh, if you listen to me, in verse 31, he says, Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. That sounds pretty good. You'll be able to stay here and enjoy your land, enjoy your crops, you, that would be, it would be just fine. All you have to do is surrender. 
Look in verse 32. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and trees, that you may live and not die. In other words, one of the things that the Assyrians did was they would come in, they would conquer a people, but they would then take a group of people and take them over here to a nation that they had conquered, and they would mix up the people with that nation and take some of that nation and mix them with this, some of this people over here. And the reason was he wanted them not to be all clustered together, but he wanted to break up their national ties. And I think it's interesting that he says, oh, just come out and surrender and things will be good until the time that I take you away. You know, that's down the road. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he says to you by, by saying, the Lord will deliver us. He says, have any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his, the land out of the king, the hand of the king of Assyria? He says, that's what all the other kings have promised, that their God would deliver. And they didn't, and yours won't. What were they saying? They're saying, Your God isn't up to the task of preserving you. And they made mockery of the living God. And when they made mockery of the living God, they stepped into it. Because they were not going to fight Hezekiah. They were not going to fight the armies of Judah. Now they put themselves in opposition against the living God. They thought, oh, if I, I can say whatever I want because I don't believe he's able to do this. Was God able to deliver them? Of course he was. What kind of God is he? We, we know from his word what kind of God he is. He is all powerful. But somebody who mocks God and makes light of him puts themselves right in the crosshairs of the living God. Chapter 19 of 2 Kings. Isaiah reassures Hezekiah. And of course, then Sennacherib defies the Lord some more. Don't believe when it says that Jerusalem will be delivered. It won't be. By the time we get partway down in chapter 19, he reads it, this letter from Sennacherib, talking about the destruction. And what does he do is he brings it in before God, this letter that is making a mockery of God. And he says, God, do you see what these people are saying? 
course he did. In verse 16 of chapter 19, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are not gods, but the work of men's hands of wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are gods alone. And that's exactly what happened. God took over the defense of Judah and wiped out the army of Sennacherib. Not a soldier had to lift his sword, not a shield. God stepped in and destroyed them all. They had made a mockery of God. And what they sowed in defaming the name of God they reaped. The writer of Ecclesiastes had these words to say about what happens when we mock God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 10 through 13, it says, When I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place, and were praised in the city that they had done such things, this also is vanity, because the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, he says, just because God didn't strike them down in the moment that they sinned does not mean that God wasn't paying any attention. God was taking note of what they were doing. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those that fear God because they, they fear before him, but it does not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before I say, well, Pastor, why are you raising these issues? He says, because it's important to think rightly about God and not little about God. We come to next truth. We do not know everything that is in the heart and the mind of God. He didn't know everything that is in the heart and mind of God. But it is always wise to pay attention to what he has revealed to us. Do we know everything that God does? No. Do we know everything that God is thinking? No. Has he revealed them to us? No. But we know enough. We know enough. And what he has revealed to us, we would better pay attention to. The problem with Sennacherib, when he came up against the 
the, the people in Judah was, he didn't have an accurate picture of the living God. He thought that they were all like gods. In his mind, he said, their gods are really no defense because all they are is just man's imagination. How many have ever heard that used to describe God? Oh, it's just a man-made thing, a different kind of way of, of rationalizing how the world goes together. There is no real true God. It's just sort of something that's been created by man in our imagination. And so, of what importance is he? None. That's sort of lying along the lines of Sennacherib's thoughts. All these other kings and all these other nations have had their gods, but I know the truth. What it takes to rule is the strongest army. Doesn't really matter because God really isn't real. It's just what they conjured up until they ran against the true God. And he found out different. There's two other stories that I was reading this week that have uh, some impact on what we're saying here. We don't know everything that is in the heart and mind of God. He doesn't tell us everything. But what it's always wise to pay attention to what he has revealed to us. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 16. And if you have a Bible that puts little notes in there, you'll probably see something, a heading on chapter 16 that says Korah's Rebellion. It wasn't just Korah, but it was Korah. Now Korah, who was Korah? He was part of the priesthood. He was part of the religious leadership of the nation. Aaron was the high priest. Moses was the, the leader that God had put into place from before uh, the deliverance from Egypt. And Korah comes in, and he comes in with a whole gang of people. And look at verse 2 of chapter 16. And they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. These weren't just some, some rabble-rousers back in the corner. These were men who were leaders And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, can't we all just sort of joint rule? Who, who made you king? Of course, he wasn't the king. Who made you leader? 
Who, who picked Aaron to, to be the head high priest? Well, what do we know? We know that it was God who had done that. It was God who had pulled Moses out of the wilderness and sent him on a mission to deliver the people. It was Moses and Aaron that were used to deliver the children of Israel out of the Egyptians' hands. It was Moses and Aaron as they crossed the Red Sea. It was Moses and Aaron that were going to be leaders. And they were all divinely appointed. He said, we don't know everything that's in the heart and mind of God. No, we don't. But it is always wise to pay attention to know what he has revealed. What did he reveal? Moses is my man. Aaron is my man. And so they rose up against Moses and Aaron. And Moses' response was this in verse 4. He fell on his face and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. And the one who he chooses, he will bring near to him. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to get your censers, which they would put coals and spices on, and it would be a sign of prayer. And he says, basically, I want you to go and pray about it overnight. Each one take your censer, spend some time, and pray about it. And that's exactly what he did. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? Would you seek the priesthood too? In other words, he says, don't you realize you're already in exalted position? He picked Levi and the tribe of Levi out of all the other tribes to serve him in the tabernacle. Then later on in the temple, he says, don't you realize the exalted position you have? The other tribes don't have that. You have that. And now you want to be high priest too? So in the morning, they gather together. As they gathered together, Moses said to them, As if the Lord has made a decision in the matter, let these who have challenged him die in a peculiar way, not, not from old age, not from a lingering sickness. Let it be some sort of unique thing. And Moses said in verse 28, 
Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works that has not been by my own accord. If these men die as all men die, in other words, natural death, or if they're visited by the fate of mankind, maybe someone kills them in battle, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all, their belong, all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. See, the problem with Korah and all these others who were following him is they didn't take God seriously. They were mocking him. They were saying, because we have the numbers, we ought to be in the same position as Moses and Aaron. We've gotten together and all of us have taken the vote. Majority wins. And God said, nope. Listen to what it says in verse 31. As soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And so they and all that belonged to them went alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Whoa. It wasn't just an earthquake that caused a division in the soil. God split it open, swallowed it up, and then close them over them. Is God someone to be messed with? No. No. What had Korah known? That God had already appointed Moses and Aaron. That's what had been revealed to them. And their idea was, we can do better. And God said, these are the ones that I have appointed. But we presume upon God sometimes, don't we? I invite you to go to another illustration that's found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and it's not nearly as gruesome. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is serving as king. And in 2 Samuel 7, David has a heart that goes out to God. He says, I want to do a great thing here. This wasn't rebellion. What this was was presumption. I, I, because I think that this ought to happen, we're going to make it happen. And what did he want to do? He wanted to do something good. <laughs> It says in, in 2 Samuel 7, And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan even bought into this. And he said, David says, I want to build 
a dwelling place for God, a, a temple. I, I, I live in a palace and God is still meeting in a tent. That's not right. Sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound good? No amens. Nathan said amen. He said, whatever's in your heart, you do it. That sounds great to me. Until that night, when the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, no, no. Go and tell my servant David, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the children, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He said, did I ever say that? No. No, I didn't do it. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you would be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off your enemies, and I will make you a great name, the name of the great ones, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. He said, but as far as building the house, no. He says, when the days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. God is going to get the last word. David thought, man, this would be such a great thing. Nathan thought, you're right on, David. This, this is an excellent idea. Have you ever had excellent ideas that weren't godly? Well, Nathan and David did. They thought, I know the will of God. Until God revealed the will of God. <coughs> the cool thing, and I want to finish up with this, is David's response. David's response the latter part of that chapter in verse 18 when he gets the word from Nathan David went in and sat before the Lord and said who am I O Lord God and what is my house that you have brought me this far and yet this is a small thing in your eyes O Lord God what was David saying I yield to your revelation. <laughs> what you say, that's what I want to do. I had this great idea. I thought it was a great idea. And Nathan said, amen. We, we were going to marshal the forces and build this place for you. And you said, no. Now that I know, I'm good with it. 
And we know the rest of the story too. David said, you know, God didn't say anything about prepping for the building. <laughs> and so what David did was he spent the latter years of his uh, rule as king, gathering the resources for his son Solomon to build the temple. He said, I, I know I can't build it, but I know now that my son will build it. That has been revealed to me. So I'm going to prepare. We could go a lot of different ways with application on this. But we live with a society and that society influences our hearts and brains sometimes too. That we think we know best. But God has revealed what he wants us to know. We need to pay attention. And my heart goes out to those around about us who are like Sennacherib who think, eh, God is just a figment of somebody's imagination. He can't possibly be real because I don't know of a God like that. So he couldn't possibly be real. Only one day you'll stand before him at the great white throne judgment and find out he very much was real and they have rejected him. What has been revealed to us about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to redeem it. I came to save it. And those that believe on me, though they were dead, yet shall they live. Is that a revelation that God has given us? Absolutely. The question is, what do we do with the revealed word of God? I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you think about the living God, what you know about the living God. But we know that he can't be confined to any box that we create. We know that he's holy and he does whatever he pleases. And God takes notice of those who mock him and tells us that whatever we sow, we're going to reap. And while we may not know the heart and the mind of God, it's always wise to pay attention to what he has revealed and act on it. Have you trusted him? For eternity, have you trusted him for life? That's what's been revealed. What is your response? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you realizing that in, in our hearts and minds we fulfill the title of J.B. Phillips when he wrote the book, Your God is Too Small. We have a tendency to, to box you in, to, to uh, say this is the parameters by which you operate, and you bust out of them all the time. And you're going to do what you're going to do, and no one's going to stop you. But what you have revealed to us, you have graciously given 
so that we may know your mind and heart in those issues. And we pray, respond in faith appropriately to our good and your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.